All right, flip to James 3 in your Bible. James 3, we're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18. Uh, this is, this we're calling as Wisdom Wars, as you'll see as we go. Um, James 3, 1 through 18. Uh, I'll pray, and then as is our custom, we'll just kind of read it in chunks. I'll comment on it as we go, and then we'll kind of tie it all together. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we ask now that, um, that the ethics of your law word would would permeate our hearts and minds so that we can live in accordance to the wisdom you give from above. We know that we are oftentimes foolish and oftentimes feckless, so we rely wholly upon your spirit for guidance. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, James chapter 3, let's look at, we'll start with verses 1 and 2. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, uh, you could say greater condemnation. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, in his words is what he's saying, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, James is obviously warning us uh, all along about what it means to live righteously, what it means to have proper wisdom, and so on and so forth. So he wants, to, he wants us to exhibit wisdom, but of course there's a major problem, uh, there's a major instrument in life that has proven really to be the most difficult to get under control, uh, and, and not only get under control, um, but get under control for the, uh, the end of, of having proper wisdom, exercising proper wisdom. And what is that problem? Well, it's the tongue. It's the tongue. And this is because what a man says reveals what a man has in his heart. Um, whenever, the, whenever the mouth speaks, when the mouth starts going, it reveals what's inside the heart. The heart is on full display now. So the man who can exhibit self-control by keeping his words righteous and pure, that is a mature man. So if the, it, James is saying if the tongue is kept under wraps, the rest of a man's being and maturity will then follow. So notice that connection. Now, he's, he warns us about teachers in the church. Not many should be teachers. And part of the reason he goes after them is because for teachers, their livelihood depends on the use of words. There is a lot of words that are used. Um, I'm saying more words than you are right now. <laughs> There's a reason for that. Um, and it depends on the context, of course. But to whom much is given, obviously much is required. That is the principle. Teachers are absolutely gifts to the church. Uh, many of you could list many people along the way that have impacted you most. You know, I, Aaron and I were just talking about Dr. Gary North and um, one of his books. And, you know, people who, who have not only just um, produced content and writing and all these different avenues, they are, they are a blessing for the church. Um, they, they can really assist the church and shape the church for the goal of the kingdom. So we acknowledge that, you know, prophets and teachers and evangelists and shepherds and so on and so forth. They're gifts to the church. But James says that greater condemnation comes to them if their words are not ethically pure and orthodox. Um, as Cody read from that passage and, and what Jesus tells us is, look, every idle word is judged. Don't think that words, you can just throw them around like they have no, re, you know, there's no um, recourse. There's no um, penalty for them. Um, God judges those things. So we are, basically, we're now introduced to this idea that the use of words, both externally and internally, 
are what, uh, that's what drives a man. Um, if, if he can keep his words in check, um, men, women, and children, all of you, if you can keep your words in check, James says that the rest of the body will follow. And now he's going to illustrate it for us. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Notice that. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So, when a bit's placed in the mouth of a horse, uh, we, ta- we can tame the animal. And of course, for, for horses, it's incredibly essential because then you can make the horse go where you want it to go. Unless, of course, it's a stubborn horse that hasn't been tamed, and then good luck, you're going to get kicked off. But for by and large, that's the principle of riding a horse. The bit is absolutely, absolutely it's small, but it's essential for getting the horse to do what it is you want it to do. Same thing with ships. When a small rudder controls a large ship, we have the same principle. Something small controlling something big. They are small, seemingly, um, seemingly insignificant, very simple things, but that controls the direction of a much larger vessel. So the bit in the mouth of the horse, the rudder on the ship, are like the tongue, he says, and they, has, they have a huge impact. They are, though they're small, they are very powerful. Look at verses 5 and 6. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. There's some funny Greek language here that is difficult, but the NASB gets it, I think, pretty, pretty much right on. The tongue is a fire, uh, the world of iniquity, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, our existence. And, he says, is set on fire by hell. The tongue, it's a very small part of the body, is prone to the effects of the fall of man. And here we need to broaden our understanding of the tongue, just so we're on the same page. It's not simply words that are spoken, but words that are said in the mind of of man. Uh, We're talking about the communication of ideas and other metaphysical musings. (laughs) Thoughts in your mind. Some of you are thinking right now, I really can't wait to eat this Mexican food when we're done. Some of you are, are thinking, I really wish my child would do this and that, right? Some of you were thinking a lot of things all the time. For James, the tongue isn't just what's spoken, it's also what's being communicated in the, your subconsciousness, in, inside of you, in your mind as your mind is tossing and turning about various things. So, many sins, he says, many sins begin with words that are silently spoken. You know, ideas. Ideas that are floating around in the minds of men and women and children, which lead then to other things. This, this communication is symbolized in the tongue. And James says it boasts of great things, right? It's small, but it's so powerful. It boasts um, and does a lot in its boasting. He even says that the tongue can set a, far, set a whole forest ablaze. Um, it's like a fire. It's like it's a world of iniquity, he says. It can defile the rest of our body and it can set our entire existence on fire. 
And if it's left unchecked, it can burn like the fires of hell itself. So what you think, not only about yourself, but about others, whether spoken or not, can do major damage. Major damage. Now, I could, I, I could not find a commentary that would suggest what I'm about to suggest. So you be the judge. You be the Berean here because, I don't know, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. But I, I think that James is very much intentionally using the analogy of the forest because in the Bible, trees are men. In fact, um, James Jordan uh, spent some time you know, tracing the symbolism of trees in the Bible signifying men. And, and when I read this, I was also thinking of Mark chapter 8. The blind man who was healed in Mark 8, if you recall, he saw what looked like trees walking around. Do you remember that? Interesting, interesting um, detail put in there by the gospel writer. I think, I think James is basically demonstrating how a single person in the body of Christ, all it takes is one person with a tongue set on from the fire of hell who can re, he can wreck an entire forest. You can wreck an entire fellowship. You can wreck, do serious damage in the church. I think that's what his point is. The tongue is like fire. Trees are like men. This is a forest right here. One word that is wrong and set on fire by hell can wreak so much havoc. Look at verses 7 and 8. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, think, think the creation story, right, is tamed, remember um, Adam named the animals, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. If only taming the tongue were as easy as taming an animal. James says that the tongue is full of liabilities and it has a super high insurance premium. <laughs> it can do so much damage that it costs you a lot to keep that thing in check. And why? Why is it full of liability? Why is it full of, full of this, this high insurance premium cost for having a tongue? Why? Well, because it's a restless evil, he says. It's restless. How quickly can your mind go off track into something either sinful or just plain foolish or unhealthy? Like that. It's restless. The tongue can be restless. Um, it's full of deadly poison. If it's left unchecked, the tongue can essentially spit that poison and ruin people, especially churches, which I think is obviously the main focus of James's letter. He's writing to Christians. Why warn Christians about the tongue? Because Christians can be just as prone to misuse of the tongue as a pagan. See, poison from the tongue it can absolutely ruin a person, can ruin your own person, and it can ruin others very quickly. Let's read 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. It's like, you know, you kiss your mama with that mouth. That's like, that's what James is saying. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? That's like salt water. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. There is an ethical problem that we must fight against. And that is not, not, not just not being double-minded, but also being double-tongued. 
blessing God while cursing man, which is in fact cursing God. If you curse the image of God, now we get this as abolitionists, right? We understand the value of human life from conception. That's why we have positions and doctrines and beliefs and actions that back that up. There's a reason we live the way we live. When you curse a man, you are cursing the image of God. You are cursing God. Um, that's why scripture holds certain penalties for something like murder, for erasing the image of God in a person. You have thus forfeited your life. God is the victim. God is the one who is ultimately that, that was sinned against. So the Christian position is not, you know, let's bless God and then curse man, but rather it's bless God and bless man. That's the Christian position. Um, any, any pretense of holiness that does not result in the taming of the tongue will basically prove a man to be a fraud. And James says, these things ought not to be. I love how he just says it so simply. These things ought not to be this way. They ought not to be this way. Why? Well, again, faith without works is dead. That's what he's been harping on for so long. Faith without works is dead. A, a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit is a dead tree. Uh, a fountain or a spring doesn't produce at the same time both salt water and fresh water. Fig trees don't produce olives, nor do vines produce figs. The, the fruit of the tree's production it has to be consistent with his nature. So that's what Christianity looks like. Look at verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Who among you? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. What a powerful phrase. Because speech is the criterion of character, James says that wisdom is needed in order to advance in holiness. Right? Speech, speech tells us about the man or the woman or the child in the moment, which means that when we speak to others, or even speaking to ourselves, we are revealing our hearts. It's wide open for everyone to see. And the way to advance in good behavior, he says is to exhibit wisdom through the vehicle of gentleness. Through the vehicle of gentleness. But there's a, there's a war of wisdom, of course. The wisdom of God versus the wisdom of, of man. Uh, there's humanist wisdom. There's godly wisdom. James is going to show us the difference. Look at verses 14 and 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, or also you could translate it as strife, in your heart... Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly. It's natural. And what he means by natural is it's unspiritual. It's of the created fallen order. It's demonic, he says. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Could you find a passage more apt to describe our current cultural predicament? There is disorder. There's jealousy. There's strife. That's worldly wisdom. That's demonic. See, humanist wisdom, the, the, what, I'm, what I mean by that is just the wisdom of man. It's bitter jealousy. It's selfish ambition. It's, the, it's arrogance. It's a zealousness of pride and strife. How many people have you encountered? I mean, we, we saw it last week at George Mason. People who will beat their chests in arrogance and pride and buck against any notion of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There's, there's arrogance. It's, it's a zealousness towards pride. It's not even just pride kept in. It's zeal on fire. That's, this, this is a party spirit. 
There's, there were factions and allegiances apparently in James's congregation that he was working through. Allegiances of people who are unlawfully dividing the body of Christ. There's a way to lawfully divide over things, and then there's an un- unlawful way. James says that although this type of wisdom obviously claims to be of God, it is really demonic, it's earthly, it's natural, which is to say it is of the rebellious, uh, uh, of rebellion, it's of rebellious men. It's of the devil. And see, when this exists, when this type of culture exists, there's nothing but disorder. There's nothing but strife. There's, there's just tumultuous upheaval all the time. That's the fruit that that stuff produces. If you have selfish ambition, strife, bitter jealousy in your heart, James says that's the fruit of it. Disorder, constant quarreling, strife. It's the thing that absolutely destroys harmony and peace in a church. See, the consequence of humanist wisdom is always going to be destruction and death. That's that's what we have right now. Destruction and death over and over. Um, Eroding away individual freedoms, individual liberties, um, health mandates, um, abortion on demand. You name it. The list is long. That's what it produces. That's what the wisdom of man gives you. And again, look no further than the wisdom of the communists the past 200 years. Look at 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Not humanist wisdom. This is godly wisdom from above. It is pure and then peaceable, gentle. It's reasonable. That word means it's willing to yield. That's you at the door coming in here saying, oh, no, you go first. No, no, you go in first. And then you fight about it. (laughs) It's you're willing to yield to others. That's that is a beautiful Beautiful word in the Greek language. It's, it's reasonable. You're reasoning with others. You're, you're willing to con- consent or yield to, the, to their will. It's full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. It's unwavering. We should be people that are characterized as unwavering. It's without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by or for those who make peace. See, true godly wisdom, then, it's from above, which is to say it comes from God himself. It is pure, it is holy, it's peaceable, it's gentle. Though That's the fruit that God's wisdom produces. It's willing to yield its own way. And this is because it always wants to make room for others. Is it possible that you could make room for others more than you are now? I think we could all say that. See, mercy abounds. Good fruit abounds. There's no hypocrisy here. There's no death. There's no destruction with godly wisdom. There there is victory. There is righteousness. There is truth. And there's this sincerity towards others. It's honesty at every turn. Being sincere and heartfelt towards other people. There's no play acting. That's hypocrisy. There's no gossip. There's no slander. There's, There's only blessing towards others. If you want to reap peace in your life, you have to sow peace. Who is the wise man, James asks. After all, shouldn't every Christian just automatically say, you know, I'm wise. I'm always wise. I'm always correct. Are you always wise and always correct? Me neither. See, the the answer is real wisdom is humble. Real wisdom is meek. And real wisdom is patience. So let's spend a few more minutes just unpacking this some more. The argument that James is putting forth was found in chapter 2, but it's here again. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. However, 
the works that James is clearly speaking of here, they're not limited to simply mere external actions alone. How we communicate in James's mind is also a work. It's something you are doing. Um, in fact, the reality is, of course, we know that Jesus is the divine speech. James calls him, or John does rather, in Gospel of John, he's the divine logos, the divine speech of God, the word of God. And all of that is because we are made, because he is that, we are made, and we're made in his image and likeness. Basically, the answer is this, communication is what it means to be human. Communication is what it means to be human. The triune God speaks, therefore we speak. That's what communication is, right? But the difference between the creator God, of course, and his creation is found in our ethical deviation from him because of sin. We're made in God's image, absolutely, but we broke it. <laughs> or perhaps maybe more apt to the discussion, we poisoned it. In short, James wants us to be consistent. James wants us to be consistent. Consistency is absolutely the, des the destination of the road of holiness. Consistency is what we all want or should want, and it's what we all need. Consistency is the destination of the road of holiness. The only way to have consistency in one's life, especially when it comes to communication and the use of our mouths, is by having wisdom in, from above. So I'm just going to define wisdom for you and the way I'm I'm sort of just mashing together what I think James is getting at. Wisdom is the spirit-granted righteous establishment of the heart and mind for proper conduct and living. Wisdom is the spirit-granted righteous establishment of the heart and mind for proper conduct and living. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the spirit, it's spirit granted, it's righteous, and it's the establishment of the heart and mind for proper conduct and living. That's what wisdom is. Um, like the psalmist who says in one, chapter 141, verse 3, we pray, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Anybody pray that regularly? <laughs> set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Because for some doors, they spit in fire. <laughs> Keep watch over the doors of my lips. In order to have proper conduct and fruit in our living, we need the Holy Spirit to grant it to us. But the way, this is what's interesting, the way in which the Spirit does the granting is through the practical means of what we can call holiness in the midst of great hindrance. Um, patience, for example, is learned in the fire of impatient-inducing situations. <laughs> Um, I've just always said, like, if you want to learn patience, go sit in on 66, I-66, and, uh, you know, Wednesday morning around 6 a.m. Um, that's how the Spirit gives us stuff. <laughs> patience, um, patience is going to come about when you're in impatient-inducing situations. Humility is learned in the face of pride and arrogance. Humility is learned in the face of pride and, pride and, um, pride and arrogance, uh, situations where you might be tended to boast in yourself uh, and take pride in who you are. Um, I love this on Shylin's his latest album. He had a little um, interlude with a guy who, he, who said his, his name was MC Goya, and, and he started rapping for Shylin. And he was like, look, man, God made me. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest because God made me. And he was kind of playing on this idea of, Look, if we're going to boast in Christ, let's boast in Christ. 
And, and there's a way we can kind of couch that in, well, man, look how, look how great I am. I'm in all glory to God, you know, but I'm great. <laughs> and there's this false humility there. Integrity, of course, is learned in the face of envy and strife and quarreling and temptation. Integrity is going to be learned in those situations. In all of those things, you'll have spirit-granted righteous establishment of the heart and the mind for proper and conduct and living when you choose to fear God rather than men. Now, James, a lot of people have said this. James is like the New Testament book of wisdom, um, much like Proverbs. And that's not wrong, and it's not without warrant, of course. It's not an accident. Proverbs, we know, tells us a whole lot about wisdom. Um, Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Memorize that. It's a great verse. Um, I take this to mean that true belief, uh, true justified belief, that's what we call knowledge, <laughs> and, and the application of that knowledge and maturity, that's what we call wisdom. That's what we call wisdom. And, and that can only be started and possessed when we fear God, right? There's, there's wisdom that stems from the fear of man, which is carnal wisdom. That's wisdom from below. But then there, that's the wisdom of demons. But then there's true maturity. There's true wisdom, which comes from above. And the way the Spirit grants it to us depends on where we place our fear. Who are you going to fear most? When you're tempted to talk about someone unrighteously, who are you fearing? in that moment. Wherever we place our fear, wherever we're placing our reverence in that particular moment in time, in that particular season of life, where are you going to place your fear? That's going to determine whether or not you're going to be able to exhibit godly wisdom. I think the reason James contrasts these two opposing sources of wisdom is because Christians will be tempted to want to exchange the fear of God for the fear of man. Have we done that before? I have. Remember, James is writing to Christians. And James knows, as do we, that Christians are oftentimes, what I, I'll just call it, pragmatism of the tongue. Pragmatism of the tongue. The root problem, as James sees it, is when, when it comes to wisdom wars, is this pragmatism of the tongue. In other words, saying things, depending on the context, that will give you a leg up against someone. Uh, fueled by strife or envy or selfish ambition, this... This wisdom of the world, it will say things in order to get one's own way. I mean, we call people like that narcissists. <laughs> people who are like emotional manipulators who will quite literally bend any situation to their will by their words. Gaslighting people. Um, and again, James is talking to the church. And it's all over the church. Gaslighting abuse victims. Downplaying abuse. I mean, all these different things. They're, they're, they're all over the place. Pragmatism in the tongue. Saying things to get one, one's own way. It's pragmatic in the sense that it's only deployed and used when it favors the one doing the talking. It has no regard for truth, no regard for love, but only regards that which will help the person win or be right or be seen in a favorable light. It's, it's professional tongue twisting. That's what it is. Double speak in order to win, as if life is this competition of one-upmanship. See, the book, book of Proverbs warns us a lot about the tongue. I'm going to give you a few verses. Hang tight. Proverbs 
When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Great verse, Proverbs 10, 19. Many words, transgression is unavoidable. Proverbs 15, 4. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart, I just picked a few, by the way, there are so many. But 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Uh, I, I can't prove this, but I think James was thinking about that when he said being slow to speak. Proverbs 17.9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. That's a tough one. Proverbs 21.23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. And lastly, Proverbs 26.20. This is a great one. You've heard it before, I'm sure. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. In other words, if you want, to, if you want the fire of contention to simmer, stop whispering. Stop adding wood to the fire. See, the truth of the matter is speech belongs to God and must be tempered. It must be controlled. Verbal self-control matters most because words are absolutely incredibly powerful. If you continue to tell yourself over and over and over again just how pathetic you are, you're not going to be a joyful person. (laughs) Not that we don't deal with sin, but there's also a level of dealing with sin all in the name of suppressing the image of God and the joy of Christ. Calvinists are notorious for this. Though it's a small, seemingly insignificant muscle, we know the, to- the tongue, the power of speech, can quite literally drag you into a pit of despair, and it can set a friendship completely on fire. So don't let hell set your tongue ablaze to the point of throwing flames at your brothers and sisters. Gossip and slander, bearing false witness glorifying strife isn't the path of wisdom. It's the path of destruction. And if we're honest, I'll just say it, all right? Oftentimes, we are self-deceived to the point where our wisdom is the functional equivalent of a nanana boo-boo. We think we're being wise, but we're actually being quite childish and immature. We think we're being smart. And we'll even document a scenario like a silver-tongued lawyer from Harvard, but we're actually quite immature. Keeping records of wrongs, right? Running a tallied list. This person did this. This person did this last year. In fact, last October, I remember this happened. You're on the wrong side of this. Sin is so deceiving that we, we, think, we can think we're being wise in communicating information to someone who doesn't need to know in the first place. But in our hearts, James says in verse 14, we can have bitter jealousy, we can have selfish ambition. I thought you should know that so-and-so said this about you. And I'm, I'm just coming to you humbly, but really you're motivated by strife. We can do it. We, we are good at this. We are good at this. Look, if it isn't pure, if it isn't peaceable, if it isn't gentle, reasonable, if it isn't full of mercy and good fruits and servitude towards others, if it isn't unwavering, if it isn't void of hypocrisy, it's not godly wisdom. It's foolishness. See, if you're not sure 
what it was what it was that was sown in this relationship look for what happens when you reap if you're not sure what was sown because we don't always know what we contribute to a relationship or contribute to things. But if you're not sure, look what it was that you reaped. If, you're, if your relationship with a friend or family is marked by strenuous tension, if it's strained, maybe you've sown evil and you should own that. Perhaps you've been motivated by rivalry or dissension. Perhaps you've forgotten 1 Corinthians 14.33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. See, if you want to win the war of wisdom, then you're going to have to look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what wisdom incarnate looks like. Self-serving wisdom doesn't pour out itself in service to others. Worldly wisdom doesn't want peace. It wants jostling and jockeying for position. It wants quarreling. It wants discord. It wants to use the tongue as a source of pain and rivalry. But it's not with Jesus Jesus spoke winsomely. Jesus spoke clearly. He spoke, no doubt, with a serrated edge at times. No question about that. But his wisdom was tempered. His wisdom was carefully curated. It was thoughtful. It was always helpful. Wisdom, of, wisdom from above, like Jesus who came from above, is easy to offer to people. And it's always easy to listen to. Why? Because there's comfort. There's consolation. There's peace. There's kindness. It's always truthful because it's sown from a heart of grace. So wisdom from above looks a whole lot like Jesus who came down from above. What is that wisdom? It's self-emptying. It's self-giving. It's meek, saturated sacrifice. And in verse 18, I want to comment on that and then we'll, we're done. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a tremendous harvest of righteousness he already told us in chapter 1, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But peace. Do you want peace in pursuit of truth? Then sow in peace. Sow in a manner consistent with the sower, Jesus Christ. If you're not reaping what you want in your own life, in a relationship, wherever that is, then start sowing something different. Let's pray. Um, God, our Father, we uh, give you the glory. Uh, you are the holy, the thrice holy God, and we come before you and thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for our gathering. Thank you for our time in your word. And God, I'm convicted, and I pray for conviction for all of us, um, that we'd be mindful of the tongue, that we would be in pursuit of godly wisdom in that process. Uh, we pray for your spirit to, to, um, to bring comfort where comfort is due. And God, bring affliction where affliction is due. Um, we ask and pray now. God, as we enjoy this fellowship meal, as we partake of communion, um, that we'd be reminded of your greatness, your goodness, and your graciousness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.